so we're going to be finishing up spiritual disciplines uh, tonight. And of course, the uh, theme verse we've kind of looked at every week is found in 1 Corinthians 9, 25-27. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Uh, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. We understand that discipline, a life of discipline, is a difficult thing to do. It implies pain, it implies struggle, uh, there's diligence, it's hard work. And so, uh, of course, Paul knew this very well. He'd been through a lot of um, things in his life, a lot of difficulties in his life. And he said, but his goal was to, uh, to discipline his body and keep it under control. And so that is kind of what we, that kind of spurred what we're talking about over the last few weeks. So over the last two weeks, we've looked at spiritual disciplines of Bible study and reading and also in prayer. And so if we desire to live a life that brings honor and glory to God, it begins with consistently being in his word and spending time in prayer. That is, if we cannot live a disciplined life, we cannot honor the Lord if we are not spending time in his word and we're not spending time uh, talking to him in prayer. Uh, last week, we looked at the fact that it is spending time in God's word that informs our spirit how to pray. If we don't ever read God's word, we don't know how to pray. We don't know what to pray. Uh, we, don't know, we don't know how to go about it, what we ought to be praying. So God's word, then the study of it, informs our spirit how to do this. And so this evening, we'll be discussing the discipline of worship. And that's how we're going to end this, this series, is talking about worship. All of our life ought to be about worshiping God. That is the goal of our life, is that we bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ, and that we live a life of worship to him. And just as God's word informs us how to pray, it also informs us how to worship God. We don't know how to approach God. We don't know how to worship God if we don't know his word. And so that we will look at that uh, this evening. So God's word tells us how we ought to do this. So worship... Uh, defined, I'm going to read a definition here, is reverent devotion and allegiance to uh, pledge to God. The English word worship comes from the old English word worth, W-O-R-T-H, worth-ship, a word that denotes the worthiness of one receiving the special honor or devotion. So although the New Testament does not instruct worshipers in a specific procedure, uh, in their service, saying this is how you, now you need to do this, and then you're going to do this, and then you do this. We don't have like a, a manual, so to speak, of how to go about doing these things. Uh, however, several elements appear uh, regularly in worship practices of the early church, such as prayer, preaching, singing, giving. They did all these things, uh, the early church did, as they worshiped God. And so the first thing we need to know is that God alone is worthy of our praise and worship. So go in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. And we're going to read a, a few different passages here uh, showing us that God alone is worthy of our praise and worship. No one else. God, God alone. And so Revelation chapter 5 verse 6. It says, in between the throne and the four living creatures, uh, living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns 
and with seven eyes, which are, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went out and took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. And from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And so just stop there just for a second. I love that verse in Revelation saying that every nationality, every race, every, every tongue, every ethnic group of all kinds uh, will be represented in heaven around the throne. And so notice that it's from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. Verse 11, then I looked and I heard around the throne in the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads and of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and i heard the creature <clears throat> every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all of them all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever, and the four living creatures said, "Amen." And the elders fell down and worshipped. And so we see this power ascribed to God and to the Lamb. Who, of course, who is the Lamb? It's Christ. And so we see all my, all power and glory um, and might forever and ever. Go to Romans chapter sixteen. Romans chapter 16. All right, verse 25. And Paul ends a lot of his letters with this type of doxology uh, and and these uh, different sayings, but they're all all kind of similar. And so Romans 16, verse 25, says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prof- uh, has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings, have been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forever, uh, forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. It says that God is the only wise God, and to Him be the glory forevermore. And so God alone is worthy. Go to First Timothy chapter one. First Timothy chapter one. First Timothy chapter one, verse seventeen. To the King of the Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And so we see very clearly, and there's tons of other passages in Scripture where you see this kind of language, where all glory and honor and power and strength and might be ascribed to God alone. And so it's very clear that God alone is worthy of our praise. And we we were created, we need to understand that we were created to be worshipers of God. 
When we were created, we were created by God, for God. Of course, sin has messed all that up. And so we were created to be, to be worshipers of God. And of course, when sin entered into the world, we still have this innate need in us of worshiping something. Because we were created to worship. And so everyone in here, you, you're a worshiper of something. And so um, you may say, well, I, I don't worship. Well, we all do. Every one of us worships something. We are made to do this. Of course, sin has messed this up. And the problem is, is not that we don't worship. The problem is that we worship the wrong things. So we begin to worship the wrong, the wrong stuff. And so rather than giving our adoration and our affection to God, we ascribe worth and praise and adoration to the things of this world. What is that called? Idolatry. It's idolatry. And we, uh, a lot of times we think of idolatry, we think of things you read in the Bible where they little carved statues that they would uh, they bow down and worship and things like that. But idolatry is anything that we put in place of God. Anything that you put in his rightful place, giving our affections to anything, to lesser things, would be a good way to say that, other than him. And so the idolatry is putting anything in the place of God. Here's an example. Um, in our day, we have built giant worship arenas. Are you aware of this? Giant. I'm talking like hundreds of thousands of people. And so uh, we, can be, we, be, we have built these giant worship arenas where thousands of people assemble to ascribe their praise and their adoration uh, to these idols. Millions of dollar, dollars are spent on these arenas. And if you don't have a new one, well, let's just tear that one down and build another one, a bigger one, more expensive one. People paint their bodies. You know, you see out these, these games. I saw the Kansas City game when they were playing Miami, and there's guys with their shirts off. I'm like, y'all are stupid. <laughs> You're going to die. It's, so, <laughs> it's like zero out there. Um, but they, they, they do these crazy things where they, don't, they take their shirts off. They paint their bodies. And then they, they know all the chants. They know all the chants, the cheers. They know when to stand. They know when to cheer. They know when to do all these things. They've been conditioned. They high-five when things are going good. They bemoan things when things don't go their way. They're unified in, in this team or this, this group that they're watching in this giant worship arena. And they'll do this for three hours. And then they'll talk about it the rest of the week. We get real impatient if church goes more than 45 minutes. These people, they'll be like, three, oh, only three hours? And then the rest of the week, they'll talk about it. And especially if they win, then they, get on their, then they get on their social media and they really begin to talk. Or if they lose, they get on and they begin to complain. But it's all, they're all consumed with these idols. If you've ever been in one of those environments, you can sense the excitement. If you've ever been to one of those. Um, or you've watched one on TV. Uh, it's very easy to be drawn in. It's very exciting. I really wanted to show you the video from 2008 when Texas Tech beat the, beat, uh, the number one ranked Longhorns. It was great. It was wonderful, and it was at home in that arena. And so it was one of the best things I've ever seen in my life. So, especially when, it, like, yeah, especially when you win with one second left in the game, that's awesome. I wanted to show it to you, but I couldn't find a... I thought, no, I won't do that. But, but if you've been in one of those environments, you can see, you can sense the excitement. You watch basketball games, they rush the court. 
I mean, it's exciting things. These arenas, they house these sports teams, concerts. You know, you hear a lot about Taylor Swift these days and all this stuff, like the biggest pop star in the world at the moment. It's filling up arenas, these concerts. And so this, this idea of worship, we're really good at it, is the point. Is that we are worshipers and we are going to worship something. Now, there's nothing wrong with enjoying a sports event or a concert or something like that. But when we begin to ascribe adoration and give our affections to lesser things than God, it becomes idolatry. That's when it becomes a problem is we begin to give our affections to it. And there's a lot of affections given to all these different things. We are created to worship. And we are really good worshipers. We worship at the altar of so many different things. Maybe it's wealth or family, reputation, a big one in our day, youth sports. They've taken over our lives. And we give all our, all our time and all our energy and all our money to, so, that, so that our kids can play these sports. And then when they become a senior in high school, if they make it that far, they say, yeah, I'm done. We give all our time and energy to these things. Maybe we worship at the altar of our health. There's some people, it's like, I'm going to eat everything perfect. I'm going to run 18 miles a day. And, and, but that's it. and again, those are good things to do. But if it becomes the passion and the pursuit of your life, we have to be careful. Um, some people, we worship at the altar of intelligence, social status, social media. I would say that people are addicted to their social media. They worship at the altar of social media, entertainment. And so we, we are really, again, we are created to worship, and we're really good at it. And so every one of us in here is a worshiper of something. The problem is because sin entered into the world, we worship the lesser things, things of God. So the object of our worship tends to be wrongly placed. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks this question, and if you don't know what that is, it's, it's a way it, there's like a, a, I, have a, I have a book of these. It's put out by the Presbyterians many years ago, but they ask questions about doctrine. And so they say, they give you a question to help, help uh, train people and teach people doctrine and theology. And so just so you, that's, that's what that is. So here's the question, then you, re, you learn the answer. But the, uh, the first question is, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end? What is your ultimate purpose? That's what that's asking. The answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And see, that sounds a lot like worship, is that we glorify God and that we enjoy him, and we're going to be with him and enjoy him forever. That begins today. And so we see that that is our ultimate uh, purpose, but the object of our worship tends to be wrongly placed. And so this describes a life of worship to the Lord. And so this is our purpose. If this is our purpose in life is to worship the Lord and tell as many people as we can about him, this is where missions comes in. And I'm going to read a, a John Piper's book, Let the Nations Be Glad, and it's about the supremacy of God in missions. But I'm going to read the first few First two paragraphs of this book. <clears throat> and so keep this in mind as we're talking about worship and worshiping lesser things. It says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. 
Missions exist because worship doesn't. And so see, hear that, that missions exist because worship doesn't, because we are created to worship God. Worship is the ultimate, not missions, uh, because God is ultimate, not man. And when this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and the goal in missions. It is the goal of missions because in missions we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of peoples in the greatness of God. It says the lack of worship is the reason we need, we have missions. The lack of worship is why we need to tell our friends and neighbors about Christ. They can't worship God, but we are created to worship. And so um, relating that to to missions and and proclamation of the gospel, it's vital that we do this. It's vital to tell them about the God who created them to worship him. And so let's look at a couple of biblical mandates regarding worship. Go to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We've kind of talked about this a little bit already, but the first one, first mandate that the scripture gives us regarding worship is that worship must be to God alone. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So he said, worship must be to God alone. See, the people of Israel were constantly, they were surrounded by these different nations, these different places to where they, were, they served and worshipped many gods. And so they're constantly beset with this idea of many gods. Yet the one true God exists, and this one true God insists that there are no other gods. That the gods of these other nations, uh, the, God, the gods on the other side of the Jordan, those are not real gods. The gods of the Egyptians, when they're in slavery, those are not real gods. There is one real God, one true God, and he insists that. He insists that. In ancient times, true monotheism or the belief in that there is one God, that was unique to Israel, that there is one God. All the people and nations around them believed that there were multiple gods. Isaiah 40, 18 says, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? And so Isaiah 40 is a chapter about the greatness of God. And so I think we have time, so let's go ahead and read it. Hold your place in Exodus and go to Isaiah chapter 40. So why is God alone worthy? Well, Isaiah chapter 40 will tell us. And if once you get into Isaiah, kind of the 40s, those chapters, 
There's a lot of this kind of language talking about the greatness of God. So Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12. In this chapter about the greatness of God. So Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12. It says, Who measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure It weighed out mountains and scales and hills in a balance. So he's talking about the creation of the world, creation of the water and the sand, and it's like you're baking something. It's like measuring like in tablespoons and teaspoons and things like that. It says, who can hold all the waters in the hollow just of his hand? Who measured, uh, who marked off the heavens with a span, you know, a span roughly. It says, God did. Uh, verse, Verse 13. Who measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult when he made, uh, who made him, and made him uh, understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. They're accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon uh, would not suffice to, for, uh, for fuel. Nor is beast enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted to him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then, the verse we read a second ago, will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman cast it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and cast it, uh, cast uh, for it silver chains. Uh, he who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that, it, that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes rulers of the earth as emptiness, scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them, they will wither, and they wither, uh, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, this is God speaking, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, who brings out their host uh, by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because of his strong power, not one is missing. Speaking of the stars, says he, he calls them out, he brings them out, and he calls them all by name. And by the power of his might, not one is missing. This is a powerful God uh, that we serve. Verse 27, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by God. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator to the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, increases, uh, strength. he increases strength. Even youths uh, shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up like uh, with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. See, we serve a powerful God. He created all this by speaking it into existence. And, it's, and so he is in control of all this. He is a powerful God Almighty, 
He, and we cannot uh, underestimate his greatness. He alone is to be worshipped. So if God alone did all this, why are there so many false gods? Well, I'd say there's so many false gods because we are created to worship something. And so notice that in back, especially, you know, think about ancient times and even in some places today, is they, you know, they, they worship uh, their ancestors. They worship um, nature or all these different things. And they create the sun god and the moon god and the, the fertility gods and the rain gods. They know that there's a god and that they're created to worship. And so they're seeking after God, but they don't know who they're actually seeking after. And so there are so many false gods because it's been placed in us that there is a God. Romans 1.19 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And so I believe that this passage, this passage here teaches that there's no such thing as a true atheist. They don't exist. And I believe that God, that, uh, that God is saying here is that I have shown them enough that they know there's a God. God's placed it in us to know that there's a God, and he's shown them enough through creation. So I believe this passage teaches there's no such thing as a true atheist. Now, there are those who suppress the truth, and they worship the creature rather than the creator. They've exchanged the worship of God for the, creation, for the created things. <clears throat> Excuse me. But there's no such thing as a true atheist. God has placed this in us. And so we all worship something, and it is the object of our worship that matters. Only God is worthy of our worship. If you're still in Isaiah, go to chapter 42. Go to chapter 42, Isaiah 42, verse 8. Isaiah 42, verse 8. It says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols or carved images, depending on what your version says. God doesn't share. God doesn't share glory. If God was to allow anything to be glorified other than than himself, that's a lesser thing. That's an idol. He cannot allow us, he cannot allow to share his glory with anything because there's no one greater. He has no rival. There's no one like him. No one can match him. And so he will not share his glory with another. So go back to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Verse 5. It says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. And what we see here, it's interesting, back in, in verse 5, we see that God bans idolatry and that he is a jealous God. Well, what does that mean? Because a lot of times we think of jealous, you people say, well, how could... How could a good God be jealous? Well, we're jealous over petty stuff. We're, we're je- it's totally, it's not, it's not even comparable to what it's talking about uh, here. The Lord is jealous for his singularity in the lives of his people. And so when, you are, when the people of God, he says, I want you and I want all of you. I don't want you divided. 
I don't want you going after the things of this world. And so he is jealous for his singularity in the lives of his people, and he will not tolerate any rivals for their affection. And this is actually an expression of love because God knows what's best for us and what's best for us to give all our affections to him. That's what's best for us. And so he actually, he loves us and he wants the very best for his people. And he will always defend his uniqueness, his majesty and reputation for there are none like him. And he knows that he alone is what is best for us. Therefore, he demands our worship. And so people, they get all bent out of shape about that. No, it's actually an expression of love because God wants what's best for us. And he knows what's best for us. And what's best for us is God himself. This is why he demands our worship and that we have no other gods before us. So this first mandate we looked at, worship must be to God alone. The second one is that worship must be done in spirit and in truth. Go to John chapter 4. This is the story of the the woman at the well, and there's a lot of things you could pull from this chapter. John chapter 4, we're just going to look at a couple of verses. You could teach several different things. Uh, Ultimately, it's about Jesus saying he is the living water. Um, That is ultimately kind of the overarching theme of this chapter. But Jesus is walking through Samaria, which he shouldn't, which no Jewish person would do that, first of all. Then he goes and he sees a, a Samaritan woman. He goes and sits, sits by her at a well, which, again, and talks to her. Again, you would never do that as a Jewish man talking, uh, they, talking to a Samaritan woman. But Jesus, he had this divine appointment with this woman at the well. He goes and he begins to talk to her, um, ask her for water. And he begins, he says, go call your husband. She's like, well, I don't have one. I have no husband. And, and so she starts getting uncomfortable, and she changes the subject. She changes the subject, and they begin to talk about worship and, so, and about the Messiah. And so in verse 19, we'll pick up. Read verses 19 through 24. It says, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you, uh, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we, do, what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Uh, but the hour is coming, and now is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And then he reveals himself to her that he is the coming Messiah. But one thing, a couple things that we do see here about worship. First of all, is that worship is not a place. It's not a place that we go. It's not in this mountain or in this, this place. It's not in this church or this building. Uh, it's not a place. Uh, Jesus' reply to the Samaritan woman was one, uh, was with the issue um, this issue that he, they were talking about, about this place of worship, it would soon be irrelevant. It soon was not going to matter. In the near future, true worship would take place neither uh, on, the, on this mountain, that's what she said, or in Jerusalem. Uh, because during the Jewish revolt against Rome a few decades later in AD 70, the temple at Jerusalem would be destroyed and thousands of Samaritans would be slaughtered on Mount 
this mountain that she's speaking of. And so you couldn't go to the temple to worship. It didn't exist. A lot, of, a lot of these Samaritans were slaughtered by the Romans. And so more significantly, the new covenant renders all external ceremonies and rituals, whether Jewish or Samaritan, obsolete. See, they were still under the sacrificial system. They'd go and they'd bring their sacrifices and they'd, they'd do the feast and they'd do all of these things. Well, that was about to become obsolete once Christ gave his life and raised from the dead. Now he was the final perfect sacrifice. So all this stuff that they were doing was going to be obsolete. Jesus points out, his point was that under the new covenant, the place of worship will not be an issue, but rather the nature of your worship is. It has to be in spirit and in truth. True worship of God is done in spirit and in truth. Spirit does not refer to the Holy Spirit, but the human spirit. And what's he saying here is that worship involves the heart. It involves a heart that loves God. It involves a heart that, uh, that, is, that is grateful to God for who he is, for what he's done. It's a, it's a grateful heart to God for who he is and all that he's done. And so worship is talk, in spirit is talking about the human heart. It's not external conformity to ceremonies and rituals. It has to come from the heart. So we had that worship must be done in spirit and in truth. Well, truth... Truth calls uh, for this heart worship to be consistent with what scripture, uh, scripture teaches and is centered, that is centered on Jesus Christ. And so it has to have both. Is that true worship of God is in spirit, from the heart, a heart that loves God, a heart that desires to serve him, a, a heart that is grateful to him, based on the truth that is found in God's word. And so, of course, we have two extremes you've got to be careful of. You've got those who have all truth, no spirit. And then you have some, all spirit and no truth. Jesus says it's both, spirit and in truth. And so this is what, the, that, this is what worship is to, it requires. Neither Samaritans or Jews, uh, neither their worship, none of it consisted of spirit and in truth as they focused on external factors. But again, think about this. This is how they've been raised. This is all they knew. This is all they knew is that we... Uh, the, the feast days and sacrifices and the sacrificial system and the law, all the, that's all they knew. That's all they were taught. Um, but Jesus had come to change things. And he tells her this. In verse 23, he says, But the hour is coming and is now here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So the time had arrived since the Messiah had come. And then he's about, he reveals it to her in a couple of verses later. But true worshipers are those who worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And so God alone is worthy of our worship. And worship must be done in spirit and in truth. And so there's also a phrase uh, in this passage here. That God is spirit. God is spirit is the classical biblical definition of the nature of God. Is that God is spirit. It's not a physical form. Now, when the Bible talks, and like, for instance, when Moses wants to see God's face, and he said, oh, I can't show you my face, but I can show you my back. It, it's, it's, it, written, it's in human terms, so we understand. But God is spirit. God is spirit. He is, in, he is the invisible God who dwells in unapproachable light 
who no one has seen or can see. What did he tell Moses when he said he wanted to see him? He says, no one can look on me and live. He would die if he was to show him, uh, show, uh, reveal himself in that way to Moses. And so in Colossians 1.15, it says that he is, the, he is the image of the invisible God. And so if you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. And then in 1 Timothy 6.16, it's where it talks about uh, that he dwells in unapproachable light. He had, not revealed himself, if, had he not revealed himself in Scripture in Jesus Christ, uh, God would be utterly incomprehensible. We could not have understood him. We could not have come to know him if Christ had not come. So true worship does not consist of mere outward conformity to religious standards and duties, but emanates from an inner spirit. It also must be consistent with the truth that God has revealed about himself in his word. Again, the extremes of dead orthodoxy, the all truth, no spirit, and the de- uh, zealous deviation from that, from that scripture, is a, <clears throat> which is the spirit and no truth, those must be avoided. It requires both. It requires both. And so if there's all spirit and it's not guided by the truth, well, then we're just, you start getting into the charismatic stuff. If it's all truth and no spirit, well, then it's just rote memory, basically. There's just no, there's not, there's no heart involved. And so it requires both. So you may say, hey, we've been talking about spiritual disciplines, so how, what does this have to do with spiritual disciplines? Well, as we make this finish up with some kind of practical stuff here, worship is more than an activity. It's an attitude of awe and gratitude, of humble submission to God's greatness and grace of obedience and love. You can worship God when you pray and thank him for who he is and all that he's done. Do you have a thankful heart? Are you grateful? If you know Christ, are you grateful that he saved you? Are you grateful that he provides for you? Are you grateful for all that he's done? When you're obedient, out of love for him, that's worship. Recognize that every activity, every relationship in your daily life can be a way to worship God. So ask God, how can I worship you today in my place, my place of work, uh, in my family, at home? Uh, how can I do this in the relationships that I have? How can I worship you in this? Spend time in, God, in God's word and prayer asking him. Again, the two disciplines we talked about, Bible, reading God's word and praying. Spend time doing those disciplines and ask him to help you recognize opportunities in your life. And a scary prayer is if you ask God to bring you one, because guess what? He'll bring you one. But And then ask him, would you bring me an opportunity? And then, Lord, would you help me to recognize it, to slow down enough to recognize it? God gives us opportunities. Again, worship is not an event. It's a lifestyle. When we come together on Wednesdays and Sundays, it should be a continuation of a daily life of worship every other day of the week. It's not just, hey, I'm going to show up on, on Sunday and I'm going to go to class, and I'm going to sing some songs, and I'm going to sit there, fall asleep during the sermon, and then I'm going to go home and say, I did my worship this week. And then the same thing on Wednesday nights, which would definitely give you a pass Wednesday nights. They're, they're tiring, I know. But, um, but it's a continuation of a life of worship that's been going on throughout uh, the week. Another thing, and this is one of the big things, is believers are to meet together corporately, regularly. Is that you commit 
and you discipline yourself, even when you don't really want to, you come. When you wake up and it's a little cold outside, it's a little cold outside, put on a coat. Probably want to bring that anyways, because it's usually cold in the auditorium anyways, right? But come. Say, say we're going, and, and, and you have kids, teach your kids, we're going to do this. We will be going to church. We're not going to be missing for all this other stuff. We're, going, we're committing to, that we're going to be there. And guess what? We're teaching our kids the importance of meeting with God's people. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. And I like the word habit because remember back to the first week we talked about is that oftentimes our sin dis- uh, it disguises itself as habits. And we all have bad habits. And so clearly some people have made a habit, a bad habit, of not coming together. You can't do the Christian life on your own. So he says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. We come together to encourage one another, um, to, to help one another, to love one another, to grow. Uh, hold your place there. Actually, we're done there. But go to Ephesians chapter 4. This will be the last passage that we'll read. Ephesians chapter 4. And this is the why. Again, one of the things, you, can wor- you worship God at home. There's lots of things you can do. Guess what? Spending time in prayer and, and reading your Bible, that's worship. That's worshiping God. Um, you, can involve, you can do singing. You can give. All these things are ways, we, these are practical ways that we can worship uh, God. But what is the importance of coming together? First of all, we're commanded to. So that's, that, should be, that in itself should be enough because we're commanded to. But Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, we'll pick up. Therefore, a prisoner of the Lord... Or, yes, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity and the spirit, the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace is given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So he's beginning to talk about the gifts that God has given you. So God has gifted each one of you. He's given every one of you a spiritual gift. And it's not meant just to be, not, uh, be unused and only for yourself. What is it meant to be for? For the edification and the building up of the church. Verse 8 says, Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led hosts of captives, and he gave, gave uh, gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles. So he begins to talk about the, the, the offices and, and gifts here. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the, and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Why do we come together? To be equipped for the work of ministry and for the body to be built up. We come together to be equipped. 
and to learn and to grow, verse 13, until we all attain a unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro uh, by waves and carried away by carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceit, deceitful schemes. See, when we're coming and we're growing and we're learning and we're encouraging one another and we're being equipped, we won't be, we won't be deceived. We won't be deceived by, it talks about every cunning doctrine that being tossed to and fro. It says we, it will help us be grounded. Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way, into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, don't don't, uh, neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. And we see in Ephesians here talking about the importance of meeting together. There's a unity there's a unity that and we have the bond of Jesus Christ. And that we come and we, and we grow and we're encouraged. And there's going to be times when life's hard and it's painful. And we have people who care about us and love us and can encourage us. And we can be that for someone else when they're struggling and when they're having a hard time. We, and, we, and we're equipped and we're trained for the work of ministry. And we go and we do that together. Of course, we go to our separate, you know, different homes and places to work. But we minister together. And we can encourage each other. And so we need that. It's important. And so this is why it says don't neglect meeting together. So what is one way, very practical way you can worship? Say, as, as Joshua, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord, and then you do it. Say, we're going to be a church. We're going to have our kids, and we're going to train them and teach them, and we're going we're to teach them that this is first. We saw so often when we were in the youth ministry is that there were certain times of the year where we wouldn't see people for months at a time because it was a certain sports season. Now, you can say all you want. This is the most important thing. But what does our lifestyle show? And so we need to make that commitment. It's, it's important to do. And so how can we do this worship God practically, first of all? Spend time in God's word. It will inform your worship. Spend time in prayer. Uh, spend time asking God to help you, um, help you uh, to recognize opportunities that, that He gives you. Uh, ask Him uh, to to show you th- show you things in His Word that you need to um, maybe you need to change. Also, there's sometimes we read God's Word and it's going to cause you to praise right then and there. And so that's that's how we do this practically. Worshiping together causes growth as individuals. So be here. Be, be part of the body, not just a come and sit, but be an active part of the body of Christ. Are you serving somewhere? How are you serving? You need to be serving somewhere. So in doing the other spiritual disciplines, we can express our worship to God through prayer, singing, reading, meditating on scripture, and giving. These are all practical ways that we can uh, worship God. And when you respond to God in obedience... That is worship. So when God speaks to you through his word or maybe through the Holy Spirit um, and we, when we respond in obedience, that worships him. So worship is not just the people that are up on a stage singing. 
It's not just the ones who are teaching or things like that. It is something that every single believer is to do. It's to live a life that brings honor and glory to Jesus Christ. Again, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is why we're here. That is our purpose. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for the stage you've given us. We thank you, Lord, that you are God Almighty, that you are all-powerful. And, Lord, as we think about that, we're so grateful that you love us and that you're mindful of us, as we've talked about in past weeks. So, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be people who worship you, that we, it wouldn't just be something we do on a Sunday or a Wednesday, but, God, it would be something that we do every single day of our life, that we would determine that we're going to spend time in your word, we're going to spend time in prayer, that we're going to worship you, we're going to be obedient. Uh, help us to determine and to discipline ourselves to do these things. And, Lord, that you would bless us for it. Pray that you would grow us and make us uh, continue to conform us into the image of your son as we know that's your ultimate goal for us. And then, Lord, for each of us in here, help us understand that our purpose, uh, that the whole reason that we're here is for you. And I pray, God, that we would glorify you and enjoy you forever. That, God, that there would be a joy that, that we find in having this relationship with you. And so, God, we'll thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.